Last spring, my wife and I took an amazing road trip, and some would call it the trip of a lifetime. We did a 5,000-mile trek around the western segment of our country, visiting as many national parks and historic landmarks as we could and experiencing the wonder of God's beautiful handiwork in His creation. To say it was breathtaking and awe-inspiring, to say the least, not to mention the fascinating and multifaceted people that we encountered along the way. At almost every site we visited, there was some sort of visitor center in which you were able to glean important and needed information to make our visit meaningful and memorable. But there was almost always an opportunity at the end of the experience to offer feedback on what would be helpful to optimize any future visits. So I never really gave it much thought as most of our experiences were pretty phenomenal, save the one at the Golden Gate Bridge when we got robbed blind. But I often wonder what it would be like to read what people might write on those cards. Well, recently I ran across something published in a leadership journal that satisfied my curiosity. And I want to share some of it with you. In 1996, some years ago, the staff at Bridger Wilderness Park in Wyoming posted some of the suggestions that had been returned to them by park visitors. Here are a few. Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. (laughs) Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness and rid the area of these pests. Please pave the trails so that they can be plowed of snow during the winter. Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to wonderful views without having to hike them. The coyotes made too much noise last night, kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. These are true. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there any way that I can get reimbursed? Here's a good one. Escalators would help on steep sections. A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. Oh, and too many rocks in the mountains. Author Mark Buchanan comments on these things. He says, please avoid building trails that go uphill. Rid the area of pests. Escalators would help. Too many rocks in the mountains. The ancients had a word for this. Sloth. Sloth wasn't just laziness, it was boredom and bone weariness. The heavy-limbed, heavy-lidded listlessness struck into us by the heat of the noonday sun. It was acedia, a death of purpose, a loss of wonder. The wildness of the wild stretches out and towers up in all directions, but we miss it whining for a chairlift, pining for a Big Mac, chafing at the bugs stumbling over rocks. You see, we all laugh at such nonsense. But when it comes to the practice of our faith, I wonder if any of us might buckle under the hand of the Holy Spirit's conviction. Again, as one author charges, if we were to gather suggestions from most North American Christians about how to improve the Godward life, we might get a list that sounds something like this. 
Give us quick, effective formulas for prayer. Dispel our doubts without ever making us touch wounds. Remove our wounds and disappointments from us. Explain mystery simply. (laughs) Take the risk and the work out of obedience. And finally, give us a God who is safe. Enter James, the bondservant and brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these are precisely the fallacies that he is addressing in his first century letter to Jewish Christians dispersed throughout Palestine. But more than that, they are the things with which we ourselves wrestle almost daily. It would be wonderful if our faith would deepen and expand and grow stronger in the midst of total comfort and ease, wouldn't it? But you and I both know that that is not the case, is it? When it comes to spiritual stamina, like physical stamina, there is a principle at work, no pain, no gain. Muscles don't grow in size or in strength without stretching and working against some resistance. Neither does our faith. James wastes no time in getting to the heart of the issue in his book. The sober fact is our faith will be tested. It will be tried. And the looming question is, as I introduced last week, will it be tried and found wanting or will it be tested and found true? Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. If you're already there, follow along with me as we read the first few verses, of beginning in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Skip down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The opening word James uses here at the end of verse 1 is an extremely unique word in that the word for greetings in your Bible is literally the word Joy. In addition, the very first word of the second verse is not counted. The first word in the original language in that verse is joy. There is a double emphasis here that James has written. In other words, the first words out of James's mouth to those who are hurting out there in the world is Rejoice. Rejoice. James gives it to us straight, no holds barred. He says a man or a woman of true faith rejoices in trials. True faith rejoices in trials. And he outlines at least four actions that can help us do just that if we put them into practice whenever the trials come. We need to first adopt the right perspective. 
Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it pure joy. The ESV puts it this way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James says, consider it pure joy or all joy or literally utter joy. My brethren, in other words, look at the trial that you're encountering with an attitude of joy. Now, it's easy for me to stand here and say, isn't it? Now, wait, what? What are you saying, James? I think you've been in Jerusalem a little bit too long and you have no idea what we're immersed in out here in the world. No, James knows exactly what he's talking about. All kinds of nasty things had been happening in Jerusalem, people being beheaded, Christians getting persecuted and run off their property, their homes being confiscated, all kinds of bad things. It's instructive that he addresses these readers as my brethren, notice that, consider it all joy, my brethren, putting himself in solidarity with them, their fellow Christians. He's basically saying, look, we're all in this together. And trials are going to happen, not just to you, but to me too. And he's not just referring to a few little setbacks here and there or one or two bumps in the road. James says that we need to adopt an attitude of settled joy whenever you encounter various trials. In other words, every kind of test you can imagine is involved in this. And they can come at any possible moment. Most people count it all joy when they escape trials, right? I do, don't you? Phew, missed that one. James insists that we learn to count it a joy when we find ourselves in the midst of them. Notice that he doesn't say be joyous for the trial, but count it joy when you encounter them. Every single word in verses 2 and 3, especially in verse 2 here, is significant to our understanding. As if you didn't know, I was going to tear this apart word by word. So let's break it down word by word. But also, before we do, we need to look at another text written by Peter, which is very, very similar to this, and hold it up side by side with this one in order to get the full picture. So I would like you to just flip a, a few pages to your right and look at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. You're going to marvel at the similarities here. 1 Peter Verse, chapter 1, verse 6, in this, he says, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So hold your finger in 1 Peter 1 and in James 1, and we're going to hold these things up side by side. The first thing we need to address is the meaning of the term trials. 
The interesting thing here is that the Greek word for trial or testing is the same exact word as the word for temptation. Isn't that interesting? The same word can refer to either some outside adversity that challenges the integrity of our faith or a temptation that appeals to our inward sinful tendencies which challenge our moral or ethical integrity. Now, in chapter 1 here of James in verses 13 through 18, later on, he's going to deal with the issue of temptations, and so are we. But here in verses 2 to 4, James is dealing with trials and tests, not necessarily temptations, and these tests are to prove or to see whether our faith is true, whether it's stable, whether it's solid, whether it's real. These are tests that God allows into our lives and are designed to produce something profitable in us. They are not, let me repeat, they are not solicitations to sin. That's not what James is dealing with here in these first few verses. And often, these trials surround us and they engulf us. They pull us into their gravity. How many of you know that when you're suffering a trial, you feel like you're being pulled into its gravity? Raise your hand if you feel that way. It's like you can't get away. And that's exactly what the term encounter means. We are encircled by our trials and we fall into their influence face to face. They meet us unexpectedly and are usually unwelcome. The term James uses here was used only two other times in the New Testament, one of them by Luke in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus described the man there as falling into the hands of robbers. Same term that James is using here, consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter, when you fall into, when you're encircled by, get sucked into the gravity of your trials, various trials. So what about trials? Now that we know what they are, what are their characteristics? Well, first of all, James says they are inevitable. Trials are inevitable. Look at verse 2 again. Whenever you, whenever or when you encounter various trials. He doesn't say if you encounter them. He says when you encounter them. They are going to happen. Trials are unplanned, unwelcome, and unanticipated. They involve people, they involve objects, they involve our circumstances. They could be medical, emotional, relational, they could be financial, they could be geographical. They might even be theological. But whatever they are, they're inescapable and unavoidable. Now, all of us have had trials. Is there anybody here that has not experienced the trial? Raise your hand if you have not. You're going to have one in a minute because I know you're not telling the truth. <laughs> well, let me, let me encourage you. If you're not having a trial now, take good notes because you will. You're going to want to know how God says to handle it. Trials are first inevitable. Secondly, trials are variable. Look at this. It says, when you encounter 
various trials. Literally, they are variegated and multicolored. It was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in relation to Joseph's coat of many colors, his multicolored coat in Genesis 37.3. It's a term that describes the diversity of trials, not necessarily the quantity of them. As I just mentioned, they come in every shape, size, and color imaginable. While we can always expect them to come, we have no idea what form they're going to take or when they will arrive, how long they'll last, and when they'll leave. They may be frequent or they may merely be frustrating, but they can also be epic and life-altering. They are outside influences of adversity which are very, very hard to bear. These are not minor irritations that James is talking about. Someone once said, adversity introduces you to yourself. It does, doesn't it? How we handle these trials that we encounter tells us a lot about the maturity of our faith. All this sounds a bit scary and depressing, doesn't it? But James doesn't claim to be a feel-good prosperity preacher. Not at all. He's dealing with people who are immersed in a very dangerous world encountering some pretty heavy stuff where they are. You know what? They're encountering real persecution. Let's talk to the refugees coming out of Syria or the ones that came out of Mosul. You see, these are dying people whose names are being posted in God's faith book, not crying people who simply got defriended on Facebook. Right? But there's hope here. Peter lends a helpful word about trials here. He says they're inevitable, they're variable, but he also says, Peter says, they're temporal. Turn over to 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even even though now for what? A little while, a little while. The term literally means small. Small. Peter says one reason to rejoice is that the trials, no matter how fiery and intense they are, are for a little while. Now, you may be in one right now that's been lasting quite a few years, and you're saying that's no little while. But when you look at that in comparison to eternity, it's a blip on the scale. Literally, the word here means small. In other words, in the grand scheme of things, they're short-lived. James is using terminology uses the same terminology in chapter 4 and verse 14, if you look at it. Chapter 4, verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for what? A little while and then vanishes away. See, James is referring to our lives being a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow, like a breath. And that's what he says about our trials. Now, when you're going through this ongoing painful trial, like my wife and I did with our daughter gone prodigal for 10 years, it did not seem like a little while. It certainly doesn't seem small, nor does it seem short. Depending on the test, you may feel like it's never ending. But here's what both James and Peter bring to the reality of our position as children of God into focus by which we can adopt the mindset of joy. See, neither James nor Peter state that we will feel the trials as joy, or that they are all joy. He didn't say that. 
but that we can view them with an attitude of, of joy because of the end destination. Amen? Note in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would, the juxtaposition of the permanence of our eternal inheritance with the temporary nature of our earthly trials, comparing verse 6 with verses 4 and 5. Look at verses 4 and 5 in 1 Peter 1. Actually, back up to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain what? An inheritance, which is what? Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are what? Kept, meaning protected by the power of God through a faith for, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you encounter various trials that seem fiery to you. You see those two things being put side by side? In other words, if you knew that you inherited a beautiful mansion overlooking the Rocky Mountains or the beaches of Hawaii, a staff of servants to wait on you hand and foot, unlimited care, pleasurable relationships that never went south, and a guarantee of a blissful existence forever and ever, and you had the deed in your hand, in your possession, you're on your way to claim your inheritance, but on your way there, guess what? Your car breaks down 10 miles from the place, and there's this cold and steady rain pelting your face. Your cell phone battery is dead, you're hungry, it's two in the morning, you're shivering, wet, and exhausted. Don't you think that for the joy set before you that you would endure that pain in order to go and claim that inheritance? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that inheritance cause you to maintain some semblance of joy because you know that every painful step of the way is one more step behind you and the joy of your future is that much closer and it will be that much sweeter? That's life. It's short. It's temporal. But think of how long eternity is by comparison. I'm starting to think about that now. I got 60 behind me, but 60 million in front of me. And more. Life is hard. That's why we have music like the blues. <laughs> There's no question about it. But complaining isn't doing us any favors, is it? It's not changing the situation any, is it? Listen to Paul's words, which corroborate Peter's and James in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For the momentary, get this, momentary light afflictions is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. But the things that are not seen are what? Eternal. They're forever. And I love, I love what Paul's momentary light afflictions are, right? 
Yet crushed, perplexed, not despairing, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always carrying about the dying of Jesus in our body. That's his momentary light afflictions. But you know what Paul's saying? He's saying, look, you can endure that and you can, you can do it without losing heart because the more trials here, the more glory there. The glory there is not to be compared. That's why we can rejoice in the midst of trials, as James says. It's Chuck, as Chuck Swindoll reminds us, he says, our rejoicing is not because suffering is great or because we're out of touch with reality but because we have a living hope, a permanent inheritance, a divine protection, a developing faith in an unseen Savior, and a guaranteed deliverance. Training ourselves to remember these truths helps us, and it helps to soften life's sharp edges, doesn't it? And you've got to train yourself to remember these things. So trials are inevitable. They're variable. They're temporal. Peter says something else in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says that they are needful and necessary. Notice that in verse 6 again. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. These trials humble us. They turn our attention to God. Well, they should. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed that you pray more intensely when you're going through a trial? You pray more frequently, more fervently, more personally and intimately when you're hurting? And you, commu- you tend to encounter his word more deeply and you're looking and digging and trying to scratch out every word from him that you can? Your communion with God is on a heightened level when you're going through a trial. Your ears are perked up more. Your spirit is like a sponge longing to be saturated with answers from God. You notice that? You ever think that it's a privilege to have your faith tested, to put you in that spot? Did you ever think that God may solicit more faith from us through trials than comfort? that he has a different agenda, a greater purpose than our fleeting earthly happiness? Because sometimes he doesn't seem to be making us very happy, does he? In fact, that's the next thing Peter alludes to, that trials are sorrowful. Verse 6 again, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. The word distressed here means grieved, desperately grieved. For some, they are incredibly grievous trials that they're going through. Peter uses the term distressed here and grieved for a reason because you feel them deeply. The pain of a friend's or a spouse's betrayal, the loss of a child, your health, a job, the difficulty of a financial or physical setback, that devastating prospect of a serious diagnosis, the opposition of our spiritual enemy. All of these things and each of these things are hard for us to bear. Yet at the same time, they don't even come close to what Jesus suffered. 
Not even close. As Hebrews 12 indicates, you know these verses, right? We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's that pattern again, the same thing. The writer says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart because you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. At least the people that the, Hebrew, the, the writer of Hebrews was writing to hadn't yet. You see, they're sorrowful. For some, they're just threatened to take us out of the race. And that's the whole point of what James is getting at. They shouldn't take us out of the race. Trials are purposeful. That's what James says. Also, First Peter, verse 7 says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They're purposeful. The trials reveal something in us. They prove the genuineness of your faith and mine. And they result in something, which leads us to the next major point. So James says, just don't adopt the perspective, but be attuned to God's purpose in the trial. Verse 3, James, chapter 1. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There's a couple of things going on here, James says. Number one, this is a process, okay? It's a process that proves faith status. A test is given to see if a student can pass, not pass out. Trials are tests to see what your faith is made of. Rather than determining whether a person has faith or not, the test James refers to here is a process intended to grow and to purify a faith that already exists. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to nonbelievers. So if you're in the midst of a trial, you can rejoice at least in one fact, the fact that your faith is real and it's being strengthened and purified. It's being put through the smelter's fire, so to speak, until it comes forth as better than pure gold, as Peter wrote. By the way, how many of you are investing in gold financially? Yeah. Read 1 Peter again. It says gold's perishable. Perishable. It can be absurd. Nothing is going to last forever. Two things. The word of God and the souls of men. And you better be investing in those two things. So, if you're in the midst of a trial, rejoice, James says, because our faith is more precious than gold. Amen? And when the test is complete and we face Christ, it's going to result in praise and glory and honor, says Peter. And I believe it will be both our praise given to him, but also his praise lavished on us because of the faith that he has brought to maturity in us. That faith was not ours to begin with, was it? 
It was given to us as an act of his grace, as a gift. It's a gift. It's amazing how God works. I was listening to the radio this week, and I caught a message by Erwin Lutzer from Moody Church who spoke right into this very thing. Referring to this gift of faith, this is what he said. Let me quote him. He wrote us right into the will. God wrote us into his will. Your place in heaven, he said, is assured. And the fact that we kept on believing him, he says, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Mary and Ruth, because I put you through the pressure cooker. And even amid many doubts, you kept believing that I was good when you looked around and there was no reason to believe it except my bare word. And you honored me, and I want to honor you now. You know the ability to believe on Jesus is a divine gift. Don't you know that? I mean, think of it. The faith that honors him is actually the faith that he gave us. We're astounded at his generosity. We can't take it in. He gives me the faith to believe. He saves me. He chooses me. He washes me with his blood. He gives me the faith to hang in there when times are tough. And then he says, thank you very much. You gave me praise. You gave me honor. You gave me glory because you wouldn't abandon your faith no matter what I put you through. That's what James is getting at. When faith is tested, it results in endurance, perseverance, or the ESV says steadfastness. It builds endurance. This is not patience, by the way. If you have a Bible that translates it patience, it's kind of an unfortunate term that they use because this is not patience that passively endures allowing the trial just to wash over you. No, the word that James uses here refers to an active, steadfast endurance in the face of difficulties. Endurance, said Thomas Carlyle, is patience concentrated. Endurance is patience concentrated. It's head to the wind, face face to the storm, standing strong under the pressure no matter how much it blows against you. You know what it is? It's spiritual tenacity. I'm not giving up. I'm going to plow through this. Someone referred to it as the staying power of life. And that's exactly what James is talking about. Indifference and endurance are two distinctly different things. By one, a person becomes insensitive to the trials. You've seen those kind of people, right? Oh, woe is me. It's just another trial. I'll just bear it till it's over. Kind of try to take the Jedi stance, but not really. Kind of sad, actually. That's not what James is talking about. James is talking about somebody that's not insensitive to the trial, but somebody that's triumphant over it. Metaphorically, it's like the Navy SEALs spiritual buds program. Right? Look up online sometime what those Navy SEALs need to go through. And that's really what James is talking about here with trials. It's the same process that James is alluding to here. Hey, look at Psalm 66. Psalm 66, verses 10 to 12. And I 
looked this up this week, and I wrote right in my margin, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 and 12, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, because it really smacks of the same process. Psalm 66, verse 8, bless our God, O peoples, rejoice, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads, and we went through the fire and through water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. See that? It's beautiful. God, through the trials that we endure, is bringing us into a place of abundance, amen? So this process then proves the status of our faith, but James also alludes to the fact that it's a process that produces stamina in our faith. Our spiritual stamina is strengthened through these struggles. The testing of your faith, says James, produces endurance. So how are we gonna deal with the trials that we experience? We start by adopting the right perspective. Secondly, we need to become attuned to God's purpose for the trial. And thirdly, we need to allow the process to take place. Allow the process to take place. That's in verse four. The ESV says it like this. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. New American Standard Bible says it this way in James Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perseverance is not the only reason for enduring trials joyfully. That's not the end result. It's only part of the process. There are more benefits involved. Just as the process of testing produces endurance, endurance works as a means to an end. You see, it's like a domino effect. You knock the one over and it just keeps hitting others and they all keep going. This is how it works. Testing leads to endurance. Endurance leads to wholeness. Wholeness leads to approval and approval leads to reward. That's what the scripture tells us. The perfect work of perseverance is to produce a perfect man or woman in Christ. Now, what does that mean? That we can be perfect here on earth? Plenty of scriptures argue against that one. But maybe a couple of other scriptures can help us here. You remember when Jesus said, right, be like your heavenly father, you know, let's be like your heavenly father who is perfect, right? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in Matthew 5, 48. He's talking about being whole, being complete, being spiritually perfect whole. Colossians 1.28 kind of gives us a better picture here that can, we can wrap our heads around. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 says, we proclaim him, Paul says, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man, what? Complete in Christ. That's the same word that James uses for perfect. Ephesians chapter 4, just skip back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13, gives us another picture. 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We're talking about godly character, spiritual wholeness, spiritual maturity. Philippians 3, 15 says, all of us who are spiritually mature should have this same attitude. But if some of you have a different attitude, God's going to make it clear to you what attitude you should have. And then in James, again, chapter 3 and verse 2, he uses the word again. He says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a what? Perfect man, a mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. This word means mature. The Christian needs to be developed in his Christian life. And trials is one way, a one way that God uses to do that. That's the point of James's whole book. He writes to show how to achieve spiritual maturity, spiritual wholeness, how it's going to happen in us. He's saying that the one who continually perseveres in trials, develops maturity in the faith, he will be complete, spiritually well-balanced. He is an excellent spiritual shape. Perseverance in trials develops maturity of godly character. Romans chapter 3, I mean chapter 5. Here's the process all over again. Verse 3. Paul writes, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. We rejoice in them, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See that process again? And by the way, just so you know, Character is not the same thing as personality. Character is not the same thing as personality. I read recently that it's interesting that in the New Testament, we have hardly any explicit descriptions of anyone's personality. Do you ever notice that in your reading? I've read the Bible, I don't know how, 30 some odd times plus. I have never noticed that fact that the Bible does not describe people's personalities. For example, we don't know if Mary, Martha's sister, was a mischievous, playful little pixie of a woman who skipped into a room where Jesus was teaching the male disciples and sat down with a conspiratorial wink up at Jesus. But we do know that she was wise because Jesus said she was. We don't know very much about people's personalities in the Scripture, but we do know that almost all of the New Testament writers are concerned about character. As Mark Green put it, he said, character is the qualities in us that lead us to the expectation of a particular kind of response to certain situations. Whatever the pressure... Modeling godly character is letting the life of Christ flow in and through us, regardless of our personality. Amen? A godly, mature, spiritually whole character is what I think that James is getting at as the result of allowing trials to run their course in our lives, producing in us a faith that is complete, lacking in nothing. 
And it's a tough course. A lot of chiseling takes place. But it's worth the work. And the results are tangible. I love this picturesque characterization of one spiritually mature man who was described by one of his closest friends, closest colleagues this way. He said, that guy is like a catcher in baseball. However hard you throw the ball at him, he always throws it back gently. What a picture. What a picture that is of the fully developed, mature Christian. No matter what life throws at us, no matter what God allows in our lives, no matter how hard the ball is thrown, we offer it back up gently. That's a person who has adopted the right perspective. That's a person that has attuned himself to God's purposes. And that has allowed this process of the testing of faith to have its perfect result. You know, I want to be like that man. Don't you? Because that's faith on the front line. You see, the front line is not just the place of mission, my friends. We always think of the front line as being a place of mission. We got to go do something. But you know what? The front line is the primary context for Jesus to teach us how to become more like Jesus. Over the years, there have been numerous theories and explanations offered up concerning the unique sound of a Stradivarius violin. Everything from climactic effects on the wood from the surrounding forest to secret molding techniques employed by the master craftsmen. However, one of the more recent scientifically based explanations that I ran across recently illustrated James's sentiment in this text powerfully, I think. I read that Antonio Stradivarius was an Italian violin maker who lived from 1644 to 1737. His violins are now the most prized violins ever made because of the rich, resonating sound that they produce. The unique sound of a Stradivarius violin cannot be duplicated today. Surprisingly, these precious instruments were not made from treasured pieces of wood. But instead, they were carved from discarded lumber. Isn't that interesting? Stradivarius, who was very poor and could not afford fine materials like his contemporaries, got much of his wood from the dirty harbors where he lived. He would take these waterlogged pieces of wood to his shop, clean them up, and from those pieces of trashed lumber, he would create instruments of rare beauty. Reminds me of a guy I know down south that does this with swamp wood. And he makes instruments that sound amazing and are rare. I mean, they are beautiful. It has since been discovered that while the wood floated in those dirty harbors, microbes went into the wood and ate out the center of those cells. This left just the fibrous infrastructure of the wood that created resonating chambers for the music. From wood that nobody wanted, Stradivarius produced violins that everybody clamors for. So also, before you were saved... And while you were still floating in the dirty harbors of the world, God was at work in you and in me. 
His microbes were there using the trials of your circumstances to eat away at your fibrous infrastructure, creating chambers better prepared to resonate with the sounds of his love and his grace. And now that you are in Christ, the trials you encounter are aging that wood and making the sound more and more resonant and beautiful. That's why those who resonate most beautifully with God's love are seldom initially formed from treasured pieces of wood, but from discarded waterlogged pieces of scrap that had gone through the process of testing, endurance, and perfecting. That's how the master violin maker uses wood that nobody wants to produce violins that everybody wants. You ever... You must know people that have weathered a lifetime of trials in their Christian life and you look in their eyes and they're soft. Soft. So James says, aim for the promise. Aim for the end result. That's how you can count it all joy. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James says that that man who is proved to have true faith will be blessed. A lot of people translate the word blessed happy. I don't like that. Not a good translation. He didn't say happy as giddy, effervescent, and and perky. Oh, perky is the man. Do you think that that would really drive you to weather your trials? Blessed is the man. By the way, that effervescent, perky, giddy, happy, 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 you know, that's another gospel, by the way. Plenty are preaching it today. As Douglas Moo says, our emotional state may and will vary with the circumstances of life, but we can be assured that whatever those circumstances are, if we endure them with faith and commitment to God, we will be the recipients of God's favor in the end. That is why we can count it all joy, as James charges in verse 2, because of the big picture. Verse 2 is dependent upon how we view verse 12. Because when we visualize the end game, We can endure the present pain. The Christian life must be understood backward. Only then can we live it forward. That's faith. Philip Yancey says, faith means believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. Those who dwell, uh, I mean, those who do understand that will receive the crown of life, James says, the crown which is life. This is not the word used for the king's crown, but for the victor's crown. The one given to the athlete who won the games, who ran with endurance, who loved Christ unconditionally and completely with the kind of love that is ready to joyfully endure anything, even death. Read Revelation 2, verse 10, talks about that. But it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to actually live that. But James was no hypocrite. He was martyred for his faith. The Jewish historian Josephus writes simply that James was stoned to death. 
Eusebius, however, recounts that he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a fuller's club. And like both Stephen and his own infinite brother Jesus, this is what James prayed as his final words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Peter writes these words. He knows what he's talking about as James. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Let me challenge you today by adapting some of the words I heard from Pastor Lutzer this week. Let me ask you the question, are you rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory this morning? Yeah. You might say, that's just, that's not true in my life today. If that's not true of your life, I can probably tell you why. It's probably one of two reasons. One is that you have succumbed to cynicism and unbelief. That'll do it for you. It'll suck the joy right out of you. The other thing is that'll do it for you is sin. And depending upon where you were last night, what you did last night, what you saw last night, that all affects whether or not you can worship God here today with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Pastor Lutzer says, think of a cup or a pail filled with joy. Sin is like taking a nail and pounding it into the bottom of that pail and the joy just runs out and the pail becomes empty. And then you say, where's the joy? But for those who are obedient, for those who are cleansed, even in the midst of the trials they're enduring, they can rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know why? Because they know where they're headed. They're headed to Jesus. You see, there's, there's this underlying truth of what James is getting at and what we all have to come to terms with concerning our trials in life. At the end of the day, A faith that cannot be tested cannot truly be trusted. Who or what are you trusting in today? Closing illustration. In 1967, Johnny Erickson jumped into the Chesapeake Bay Bay, having misjudged the depth of the water and she emerged changed forever. She would, from this point forward, be a quadriplegic, living her entire life in a wheelchair. She is a picture of our text in James, modeling joy in the midst of suffering. You probably know this more than most. She 
she shows that God often has a good purpose for our suffering. On one occasion, Johnny discussed having her wheelchair in heaven, and this is what she said, quote, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know it's, that's not biblically correct, but if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. And I will then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble and tribulation because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble to me, Jesus. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, Johnny says, I always say jokingly, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. (laughs) You see, where does that type of joy come from? Ultimately, we know the answer to that question, don't we? Such joy can only come from God through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So let's pray. Father, no matter what we encounter May we submit it to your hands. If the ball is thrown at us hard, may we return it to you gently. If it's thrown gently, may we also return it gently. In all things, Lord God, may we return it to you. May we look to you for our strength. We each individually go through our own sets of tests and trials in life. Uniquely, allowed into our lives by you for each of us personally. You know what we can handle and you will only give us what we can handle with your strength. We can't handle anything on our own. But with you, we can do all things. So Lord, as we encounter the various trials in our lives, May we bow our knee to you. And may we keep the end game in sight that one day we will stand before you face to face and hopefully hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. May we enter it now, Lord God, as we walk through this world until the next. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.